Uh, We're continuing in our series through the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, please turn to our passage for today. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, but, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Amen. Amen. The word of the Lord. In Mark chapter 2, we see the beginning of the infamous conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. These Pharisees, these scribes, these leaders, they accused him of blasphemy when he told the paralytic that his sins were forgiven. They said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Then they judged Jesus for eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. And in our passage today, the people are comparing the disciples of Jesus with the disciples of John the disciples of Jesus with the disciples of the Pharisees. And the question that they asked to Jesus is, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? Why don't they act like the other religious men? Why don't they act like the other holy men that we see in Israel? And now it seems like a harmless, honest question. But in reality, it was a criticism disguised as a question. Have you guys ever had those where somebody asks you a question, but it's actually kind of like a jab or a slight? Kind of like if you're single and your parents ask you, why aren't you dating yet? Right? Not just like, oh, are you seeing anyone? Or, you know, but they ask, why aren't you dating yet? Are you even trying? What's wrong with you? Maybe you should go to the gym. Maybe you should go on a diet. Maybe you should change your clothes. Maybe you should... And you're just like, are these questions or an interrogation? Like, are these accusations? Or if you're working on a project, whether it's at school or at work, and someone asks you, maybe it's your boss, maybe it's your spouse, and they ask, why did you do it like that? You're like, what are you trying to say? Right? I, I, I sense, I, I feel, I know the undertones. Or if a first-generation Korean pastor asks you, why don't your members come to morning prayer? Oh, wait, you guys don't get that question? I get that question all the time. Anyways, it's all good, but you know, for me, it's like water off a duck's back, right? I'm just like, brush it off, no problem. So what is the criticism against Jesus' disciples in that question? Why don't your disciples fast like the disciples of John or the disciples of the Pharisees? What they're really saying is, your disciples, Jesus, don't seem very godly. They don't seem very holy because they don't fast. You see, to the Jews, fasting was one of the key pillars of piety, one of the key expressions of holiness. The Torah required one fast for the Jews on the Day of Atonement. But you know what the Pharisees did? They created more fasts, right? There was one for Israel, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees said, you know what? We're going to fast more. They created more types of fasting. They would fast twice a week. 
Mondays and Thursdays. They would fast if a tragedy struck Israel, if they were in a famine, or if they were at war, or if they were in a drought, they called Israel to a fast. They would fast if they were in a personal crisis. They would fast if they wanted something, if they needed something from God. They would fast to demonstrate their commitment to God. And when they fasted, everyone knew they were fasting because they would make a big scene about it. They would look the part. Maybe they would dress in sackcloth. They would let their hair down. They would be unkempt, all so that everyone would know that, oh, these Pharisees, they are fasting. And Jesus rebukes them in his Sermon on the Mount. But Peter, Matthew, James, and John, these guys weren't fasting. They were feasting. Jesus feeds the 5,000 bread and fish. They all eat. They gobble it up. They have their full. And so to the Jews, these guys didn't seem very godly. They didn't seem very pious. And the question suggested that if they wanted to be taken seriously as religious leaders, as people who would bring renewal and revival to Israel, then they need to pay greater attention. They need to pay greater attention to the fasting protocol. Now, what's amazing is that Jesus uses this kind of passive, aggressive question that the Jews asked him to teach some very important, precious truths about himself and what it means to be a true disciple. As we unpack this text, we're going to see the call first, the call to feast with the bridegroom. That's the first point, the call to feast with the bridegroom. The second thing we're going to see is that there's a time to fast for the bridegroom. There's a time to fast for the bridegroom. And thirdly, there's a way to unite. There's a way to unite with the bridegroom. So the call to feast, the call, a time to fast, and a way to unite all with the bridegroom. Let's talk about the feasting. Now, when I got married to Alice, uh, we knew that that, this, that, that day it wasn't just about us being like the centerpiece and the rock stars of our wedding. We knew we were also hosting the biggest party of our lives, right? The biggest party of our lives. And so we, we catered food. We ordered drinks. We were popping bottles of that Martinelli's apple cider. We hired a funk band. They were called Ramfunctious. They were amazing. Just, and we had the time of our lives. It meant so much for us to be celebrating our wedding with friends, with our family, with people that we love, the people that we, we shared life with. And so the worst thing that our guests could have done to us would be if they just attended the ceremony, dropped off a gift, and left. Not attended the reception, not ate the food, not drank the apple cider, not danced to the music. If they just said, hey, here's a gift, love you guys, but we have to go. Or the other thing that would really have hurt us, what really would have wounded us, would have been if they attended the reception only to tell us that, hey, Pastor Michael, you know, we're fasting, so we're not going to really eat. And you know what? In our, in our holiness and in our piety, we're not going to dance because, you know, we want to keep it low-key for Jesus. We're not going to celebrate. There's not going to be any laughing. There's not going to be any clapping. We're just going to be somber and morose the entire evening because we are set apart for God. That would have been so painful. I would have been like, I should never have invited you to this wedding. But this is Jesus's point when he asks, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. What is Jesus's point? You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus came to offer us life 
and life to the fullest. Not just to save you from hell. Not just to turn you and I into these kind of low-key religious robots who have no passion, who have no joy, who have no happiness, but rather that he came to offer us true joy. And he came to offer us the greatest reason to celebrate. In his incarnation, Jesus didn't just come down as the word become flesh. He didn't just come down as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus came down as the bridegroom, here to redeem his bride, the church. In the Old Testament, God made this promise to his people. God knew that his people were afflicted with sin, that they were pressed all around them from neighboring nations, whether it was the Canaanites from the south, whether it was the Assyrians from the north and the east. God knew that Israel was struggling, and at times they felt so forsaken. And so he spoke to them a promise that he would come to them, that he would redeem them, that he would be theirs, and that they would be his. Hear these majestic words from Isaiah 62. Verse 4, God says, You shall no more be termed forsaken, And your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Again, through the prophet Hosea, God declares in Hosea 2, 19 to 20, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. There are no more beautiful words in all of scripture than those, are there not? You see, church, this is the zealous, holy, and beautiful love of God. A husband's love brimming with righteousness and justice. A husband's love abounding in faithfulness and mercy. You see, if the disciples of John, if the disciples of the Pharisee knew that these promises made through Isaiah, these promises made through Hosea were fulfilled in Christ, they would have stopped all of their fasting. They would have understood that this was not a time to fast, this was a time to feast, that this was a time to celebrate because their bridegroom had come. They would have known the fasting is off and the feasting was on. For Jesus is the true bridegroom and he has come to make his people, he has come to make his church his delight. That is the call for us to feast with the bridegroom. Second, there is a time, though, to fast with the bridegroom. You see, Jesus doesn't end there. He continues in verse 20, and he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. This is such an ominous verse. After Jesus talks about celebrating, after Jesus talks about feasting, he then says, there's going to be an end to this feast in this time, in this moment, in this season. 
You see, normally it's the wedding guests who leave. The guests leave, why? So that the bride and groom can begin their new life together. So they can enjoy that wedding night and uh, consummate with one another. But here, Jesus says that's actually not going to happen. Here, Jesus tells his disciples that there will be a day when the groom is forcibly removed from the wedding celebration. Just imagine that. In the midst of the celebrating, in the midst of the feasting, the groom is taken away from his bride. As a man is taken into custody, Jesus knows that he will be betrayed. Jesus knows that he will be turned over into the hands of unjust men. Jesus knows that he must go to the cross. He knows that in order to fully redeem his bride, the bridegroom must become the victim. There is a price for the bride, and he must pay that price with his own blood. And in that day, when the disciples see their Lord hanging on the cross, bleeding for their sins, when the disciples sense the absence of the presence of their Lord, in that day, the disciples will fast. In that day, the disciples will hunger and long. In that day, his disciples will mourn. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus did not abolish fasting. He affirms it here. He did not abolish fasting. He affirms it in the Sermon on the Mount, but here he gives us a true reason to fast, the true reason to fast, and it is this. Why should you and I fast? It is to remember the death of Christ, and it is to prepare us for his return. That is the heart of Christian fasting that we would remember the death of Christ when our bridegroom was taken from us because of our sins and that we would prepare ourselves for the return of Christ. Church, this is such an important message for us because fasting is both neglected and abused in our day, okay? There are most of you who, uh, there's some of you who have never fasted in your life, right? You'd be like, I only fast because I didn't have time to eat or I forgot to eat, but as far as an intentional fast, to really be mindful of the gospel, to really prepare yourself and to, to, to center yourself on the return of Jesus, we're like, ah, oh, it never happened. Many of you have never fasted according to the teachings of Jesus. Many of us can't remember the last time we actually fasted. And unfortunately, for some who do fast, you fast for the wrong reasons. You fast for petty and personal reasons. I hear all the time of parents fasting for their children, but it is not for their children's sins and their salvation. Rather, it's fasting so that their kids would do well in school, that they get into the dream college, that they they would succeed and excel. Students fast to get into the grad grad schools. Young adults fast so they can get their job or they can find a spouse. I always find it so interesting when they're, and no judgment, if this was you, no judgment. I'm not trying to throw shade, but I always find it so interesting when I hear like a story of like a Christian couple thinking about getting together and before they get together, they're like, oh, but we fasted. And I'm like, what does fasting have to Anyways, I just find it so interesting. But, but we get into that Christian mode. Oh, there's like a big decision. I want something. I got to go for it. So I'm going to fast. And suddenly that's like the stamp that like, like the approval, the blessing of God will be with you. Why then should we fast? 
right? I'm just going to say it, okay? Those pictures of fasting for better grades, for romance, for accomplishments and success, that's not biblical fasting. It's not. Fasting is not a spiritual means to get what you want. What makes you think that God will give you what you want just because you skimped out on a couple meals? How does that work? Just because, oh, like I didn't eat for a day or three days and God's gonna give me everything that I desire. Where does that, where is that promised in the scriptures? And yet we see this in our culture. We see this in the church. That is not biblical fasting. So why then should we fast? We, would, we should fast in order to remember the cross. We should fast in order to deeply unite us to Christ, to remind ourselves that our satisfaction doesn't come from food. As great as King Taco, as great as Lawry's, as great as you know, Korean barbecue or sushi might taste, that our deepest and our greatest satisfaction doesn't come from food or the things of this world, but only in the return in the presence of Christ. That's why you fast, to remember that Jesus is your portion, that Jesus is better, that Jesus is greater, and he's the only one that can satisfy your soul. Parents, can you fast for your children? Yes. Brothers and sisters, can you fast for people in your life, your coworkers, your friends, your community? Of course, but not just for the earthly well-being of the people you care about. Fast for their eternal joy. Fast for their eternal satisfaction, the eternal treasure of knowing Jesus as their bridegroom. That's what Jesus invites us into. And this is the true spirit of Lent. As Protestants, we often do not practice Lent. Lent is mostly termed as like this kind of Catholic practice. It's a a 40-day season before Easter. It begins with Ash Wednesday. Historically, Christians would intentionally fast various things all to prepare themselves for Good Friday, all to prepare themselves for Easter so that they would remember with great intention the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christians were willing to make themselves uncomfortable in the flesh to remind themselves that their true comfort is in Christ. And brothers and sisters, even though Lent has already begun, I want to encourage you to consider this question, the spirit of Lent, What can you do in this season to more intentionally remind yourself that Jesus is enough, that Jesus is your portion, that Jesus has loved you to the point of death? He is all you truly need. And so perhaps you will scale back on social media. Perhaps you scale back on watching your TV shows or Korean dramas. Perhaps you scale back on certain types of foods. Perhaps you scale back on just things, just to remind yourself every day that these do not bring you true joy, true happiness, that these things are are not the source of your great celebration, your great feasting, your great happiness. You can do without those because you have Jesus and he's enough. I want to encourage you to consider that for your life for your sanctification, to truly be united with Christ. We've looked at the call to feast with the bridegroom. We've looked that we've seen that there is a time to fast for the bridegroom. And finally, let's look at how we can unite with the bridegroom. There is a way for you and I to be united with the bridegroom. Let's go back to the text. This is what Jesus says. 
And it seems off, but there's a great purpose to this. It seems so different than what he's, ta- he's talking about a wedding, and he's talking about fasting, and then boom, he's talking about wine and uh, clothes and garments that are shrinking. But this is what he says. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Jesus here is offering us two short parables, and they have the same meaning. They have the same meaning. Jesus is the new wine. Jesus is the new cloth. He is that unshrunk cloth. The old garment The old wineskins, they represent the man-made traditions of the Jews, the man-made religion of the Pharisees. And you know what Jesus is saying? The two cannot mix. They are incompatible, right? Jesus and the Pharisees, they are incompatible. He will tear the old garment. He will burst the old wineskins. And what Jesus is telling us is that he cannot He will not simply be added on to man-made traditions, okay? That he will not just take the traditions of the Pharisees, the culture of the Jews, the preference of the scribes and say, okay, I will just kind of attach myself onto your worldview, attach myself onto your system of religion because you got it all wrong. He will not be synthesized with man's religious ideas. Jesus will not conform to the false expectations of the Pharisees or any false expectations that we might place upon him. Jesus doesn't conform. Theologian James Edwards, I've been leaning on his commentary and it's been so rich for me. This is what he writes about Jesus in this passage. He says, Jesus, he, he is like the scribes in that he teaches, but his authority surpasses theirs. He relinquishes himself completely, though never surrendering his divine authority. He gives himself in service, though though rendering allegiance to none but God. He gives his life to the world, but he is not a captive of the world. This is our Lord. This is Jesus, the new wine. This is Jesus, the unshrunk cloth. If you want to know him, if you want to receive him, if you want to be united with him. You cannot expect him to adapt to you. You cannot treat him like an add-on to you. You cannot say, Jesus, would you just enhance my life? Would you bless my ways? Would Would you grant success to my desires? No, we must be his. This is what it means for us. He's not here to enhance our personal agenda. He's not here to affirm your preset ways. He is the new wine, and our hearts must be new wineskins, fully surrendered to him. It's not about just making some room for Jesus in your heart. See, I think this is what we do. The preacher says, would you ask Jesus in your heart? And we say, yes. But we ask him into like the house that we have already built, the edifice, the structure the constructs that we have already built in our hearts. And we say, Jesus, come on in, make it better. Clean it up a little bit. Give me the feels, give me some positivity. Help me feel blessed. Help me, uh, yeah, help me feel loved. 
but we treat him as an add-on and we just make some room for him in our hearts. That's not how you experience Jesus as the bridegroom. It's about giving all of your heart to him. Just as new wine breathes and expands in new wineskins, Jesus wants to breathe his life and expand his work in you. This is how you and I become united to the bridegroom. You and I, we receive all of him in all of us. Okay? We must receive all of him in all of us. There's this phrase that Alice will say to me uh, when she's upset. When she's not happy with me as her husband, she'll say this phrase, and, and, and after studying this passage, it stings that much more. So I have all these, like, like, like all this baggage I need to unload and uh, be reconciled with her. But she'll say this. She'll say, you live like a bachelor sometime. You act like such a bachelor sometime. And what does she mean by that? I, I wear the wedding ring, right? It's on. Like, I see some of the married men, you guys don't wear it. You're just uncomfortable. I wear it, right? I'm like, boom, like... I, but what does she mean by, by, by that when she says, Michael, you live like a bachelor sometimes? What she's pretty much saying is, I do whatever I want at times. Right? Maybe I'll come home late and I won't give her a call or I'll just be golfing with my other pastor buddies and, and I'll just like, want to extend the day without any regard to her. I'll break our plans and our schedules and I'll be like, yeah, hey, you'll, you'll be flexible. You're good. You're adaptable, right? And, 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 and that's not okay with her. Because I am no longer my own. I belong to her. She belongs to me. To be married to my wife means that I am no longer a bachelor. I no longer get to do whatever I want, whenever I want. It's not my own credit card anymore. It's not my own checking account. It's ours. We just got new checks. It says Michael and Alice. I'm like, oh, this is weird. Right? Do you live like a bachelor as a child of God? Or do you live with Jesus as your bridegroom? Do you live as a person who belongs, not just on Sundays for an hour, not just when you go to a retreat or go to a small group, but do you live with all of your life united and wed to Jesus Christ, the lover of your soul. What areas of your life are you exerting your own authority, living according to your own ways without any regard to Jesus and his lordship, Jesus and his presence, Jesus as your beloved? Would you consider your ways? Would you turn from them? Would you allow Christ to fill your heart, to fill your life in those corners? Brothers and sisters, the scriptures tell us that when we die in faith, we get to go to a city whose builder and architect is God. Just imagine that. When we die in faith, we get to go to Zion. And Zion is a city that is not built by the hands of men, but it's built by the hands of God. What if we could say the same about our lives? That it's not just heaven that is built by God, but your life is built by the hands of God, that your passions are shaped by the word of God, that your family is centered around the gospel of God, that your career is directed by the lordship of Jesus Christ. May your life be a testimony to Jesus Christ 
as the builder and architect. Brothers and sisters, you are his beloved. May he be yours also. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins, but also to fill our hearts with such a great love. Jesus, we thank you that you are our great bridegroom who loves us with righteousness and mercy, justice and holiness. We thank you that you are so faithful to us even when we are faithless. Lord, may we be united to you more and more as the great lover of our souls. Have mercy upon us for at times living like bachelors, living according to our own ways, our own preferences, our own pride and ambition. May all of who we are belong to you. Would you make us new wineskins that Jesus as the new wine, you would fill us. You would expand in our hearts. You would give us life and true joy.